The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them once again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that, has off, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then our text for the sermon now begins in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation— For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Sermon titled this morning is just simply called Anchor of the Soul, and we're pulling that right out of verse 19. And the big idea that um, if you want to cobble these verses together, 9 through 20, and and, and boil them down to their essence, the big idea is this, that we are being called to rest assured. We can have an assurance, we can rest assured because of the certainty of God's promises. Believers have a stable anchor for their souls in Christ. So because of the certainty of God's promises, we can rest assured. We have a sure foundation. We have a stable anchor for our souls in Christ 
Jesus. And this is the strong encouragement that he just talked about there at the end of these verses that he's going to continue to put before us this morning coming off the heels of one of the most terrifying warnings found in all of this letter written to the Hebrews. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. I'm going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word, and then we're going to turn and dive into this text to see the strong encouragement that the author has for us this morning as we move into these words. So let's pray. Father, we come before you again, the good and gracious one. You are worthy of the greater glory, and so we are here humbling ourselves before your word, submitting ourselves to your word, coming to you dependent upon your word, asking that you would open our eyes to see Jesus in this text, asking you, Holy Spirit, to open our minds to understand the words that we're going to be saying and studying here from from these verses. Our aim is to put the spotlight solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you love to do that. You exist to do that. You love to put Jesus in the limelight and to magnify and exalt the greatness of his name. So I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would use me in this way, empower me in this way, almost as it were, set me aside so that what is center stage is the Lord Jesus Christ as we proclaim him in these words. It's in the name of King Jesus I pray these things. Amen. Well, this is a little parenthetical tangent, a little parenthetical pause in his overall argument, these verses that we find ourselves in. Chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6 through 20 that we're going to be wrapping up this morning. And if anyone has been confused so far, let me, let me clear, clear it up for you. Uh, yes, it is true, you're not confused, the author has been using some extremely robust language to those whom he originally wrote in this little parenthetical pause that he's been taking. In this parenthesis, he has given a very strong rebuke concerning the reality of spiritual immaturity, and he's also given a very terrifying warning concerning apostasy. But lest his people think that he is against them because he's been speaking with this kind of language, the author noticed there in verse 9 is very quick to turn to them and use a term of endearment that he uses one and only time in all of Hebrews. He turns out of that terrifying warning in verses 4 through 8, and he says, now listen, beloved, he calls them. Loved ones, ones whom I love. And when he's doing this, I think he's pastoring them well by reminding them that his blunt words of warning, his very blunt words concerning spiritual immaturity, these are not words out of his mouth born from a heart of hate for them. These are words that are born out of a heart of love. These words are an overflow of a heart burning with love for those whom he's been called the shepherd as their pastor. And so while it's true that there are times when love for someone makes strong words of warning very necessary, it's also the same with very strong encouragement. Love can lead us to speak words of strong warning, 
But love can also drive us to speak words of very strong encouragement. And that's why throughout this letter, the author consistently mixes in large measures of encouragement that call us to consider Jesus as better over and over and over and over and over again. And in the text before us, in these verses, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, the author delivers to us encouragement in spades. Weary pilgrims traveling the gospel way. Weary pilgrims tempted by sin, Weary pilgrims who can be stung by doubt. Weary pilgrims buffeted by suffering, struggling forward in spiritual maturity. It's weary pilgrims like these who travel the gospel way, who need the strong encouragement of God's certain promises. That when God says something and makes a promise, we have the certain guarantee that what he says will come to pass. And it's to this very reality that the author now turns, coming off of that rebuke of spiritual immaturity, that warning of the drift that can land in apostasy. He now says, we need to pull this in, and I want to encourage you. I want to pour the fuel of encouragement onto the embers of your heart. Why? Because you're weary pilgrims traveling the gospel way. We know ourselves enough to know that we can be tempted by sin. We doubt, we suffer. The forward march of spiritual maturity can be hard. Sometimes it feels like it's one step forward, two steps back. And so he says, what I want to do is I want to point you to the strong encouragement of God's certain promises. Promises that give us the unshakable hope of a stable steady, sure, steadfast anchor for our souls. So the author is going to give three shots of very strong encouragement here in verses 9 through 20. And the first strong shot of encouragement is that he feels sure of better things. We're going to find that in verses 9 through 10. We're going to hear him use this language that as he thinks of them, he feels sure of better things. So in your copy of scripture, you can look in verse nine, beginning in verse nine, the author says, though we speak in this way, though we speak in what way, the ways that he's just been talking about the whole spiritual immaturity, the whole idea of that terrifying warning, though we speak in this way, specifically that language of identifying those who drifted off into falling away from Christ, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, he says, we feel sure of better things. What better things? Things that belong to salvation. You see, in saying this, the author is confident that those to whom he is writing are genuine Christians as opposed to those almost Christians that we talked about last week. The question that we should be asking ourselves in this verse, verse 9, is how can the author be so sure that the better things of salvation belong to them? Because that's what he's saying. He's, like, he's saying, I know what I just said back there in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, that terrifying warning of apostasy, but I was talking about those, I was talking about them, and now when I'm looking at you, beloved, I am confident 
that the things of salvation belong to you. So the question is, how can he be so sure? What makes the author so certain that the better things of salvation truly belong to these believers? And the answer is because there is the observable fruit of God's salvation in their life. That's what he says there in verse 10. Look, he says, for God is not unjust. So he's going to anchor this observable fruit in the character of God. God is not unjust. As to overlook your work, he says, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, the author draws this conclusion that the better things of salvation truly belong to, to these men and women because their lives look like the crop-producing field he just referenced in his illustration from last week. So do you remember the terrifying warning from last week? Verses 4, 5, and 6 were extremely pointed, very blunt language, and then he uses that illustration of the two fields. He says there's one field that receives these things and just springs up into an abundant overgrowth, an abundant producing well-harvested field, and the other one just produces thorns and thistles. So don't divorce that illustration from this reality. I think what he's saying is this. The reason why I am confident that the better things of salvation belong to you is because I'm looking at the field of your lives and I'm seeing a God-born-out, observable fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your lives. In particular, he sees the fruit of genuine love for God, he says. The love that you have shown for his name. He sees the fruit of genuine love for God that overflows into a genuine love for God's people, the saints. Ultimately, that results in the ongoing ministry, your work of serving the saints that you still do. So in saying this, the author sees truly changed lives that yield ongoing fruit in their lives which can only be attributed to God's work of salvation in them. So it's not as though he's looking at them and he sees a bunch of spiritual thorns and thistles. He's looking at them and he's seeing spiritual growth. He's seeing spiritual fruit. And it's not just fruit that happened like a long time ago when they first came to Christ. He says it is something that is still going on. You still do this. You came to faith in Christ by the grace and mercy of the living God, you now love him because he first loved you. And out of the overflow of God's love for you, it rolls outward on the horizontal planes of life to the saints. And it's not just something you're doing in word only, but it's actually matched by deed in your life. Your overflow of this love leads to this love, and this love is observable in the way that you serve the saints as you still do. It's something you started with doing when you came to Christ, and it's something that's just marked the day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, ebb and flow of the way you pursue Jesus. And his conclusion is that is an evidence and a sign that the better things of salvation truly belong to you. Now, I want you to sort of hear this sort of application of this idea because it's important for us to see how the author just answered this question. What question? The question of how can he be so sure 
when he looks into the lives of his people and says, I know you're not the apostates we are talking about. I know you are the people to whom the better things of salvation belong. It's important to see how the implied question in verse 9 got answered in verse 10 Because in seeing how he answered the implied question of verse 9 in verse 10, what he just demonstrated for us is how any of us who struggle to be sure of our own salvation can know and have that assurance. The question is, can you look at your life and see evidence of a God-born, a Spirit-empowered fruitfulness in your life, a fruitfulness that is coming about because God has saved you. God has loved you because you have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one key way professors of faith in Christ can be sure that they are genuine possessors of faith in Christ is when the good soil of their heart yields the persevering fruit of Christ-like love for other Christians. Let me say that again. One key way, professors of faith in Christ. So we talked last week, there are people in the church this morning in the world who go around saying, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. They profess faith in Christ. But as we said last week, there are genuine Christians who profess faith in Christ, and there are the almost Christians who Make the same profession, but time tells the difference between the two. So the question is, and I know some of us are asking this question, like, what can I do to help try to wrestle with the doubts of my own salvation? I know some of us are wrestling with this because I had conversations with you last week after service. And I know some of us who probably wrestle with those same doubts did not come and talk to me. So the author here, I think, is pastoring us in this way. He's saying, listen, if you are a professor of faith in Christ, here is a way, one key way that you can be sure that your profession of faith is a genuine possession of faith in Christ. It's when the good soil of your heart, so that is Jesus' parable of the soils language, good soil of the heart, yields the persevering, ongoing, marching forward, day in, day out, fruit of Christ-like love for other Christians. That's what he's saying right now. I look at you, I see how God has loved you, I see how that love has led you to love and serve the saints, other brothers, other sisters in Christ. Now, what you need to know is that what I've just said here, this is not just a Hebrews 6 reality. You can see this very idea conveyed in other places in the New Testament. For example, in his first letter, the Apostle John taught this exact same truth. Listen to what he said. This is what, John, this is what the Apostle John said. We know that we have passed out of death into life. So do you hear the language? Are you wondering... If you are someone who's passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life, that's just Bible language for salvation. That'd be like passing from spiritual blindness to sight, spiritual darkness to light. How can you know that you have passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life? The Apostle John says, here's how we can know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. We have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. My question is, how many of us would have filled in the blank with that answer? Some of us are tempted to fill in that blank 
with all kinds of things. Well, I know I've passed out of death to life because I've given money to the church, because grandma is a Christian, because I've been catechized in the church, or I've gone through a class of confession, or, or whatever it might be. That's how I know I've passed out of death to life. But actually, he says, here's a sign, a good sign, a good piece of evidence that you've passed out of death into life. It's because we love the brothers. He says, whoever does not love the brothers, says the Apostle John, actually abides in death, he says. 1 John 3.14. You're like, okay, well, did Jesus ever teach the same thing? Yes, he did. He taught the exact same truth, and at the end of... The foot washing episode, John 13, John 13, verse 35, Jesus said this, By this, all people will know you are my disciples. True, genuine followers of me, disciples. How? If you have love for one another. That is how people will know that you are a genuine disciple of me. Now notice, I did not say that one of the pieces of fruit in our lives that is evidence that we are possessors of the faith we profess is that if our lives display the perfect fruit of love, like as in you've never stumbled or never struggled or never failed in this area, we all do, but the question is, is the general trajectory of the field of my life a trajectory that yields this spirit, fruit, in my life, what is one of the key fruits of the Spirit? Love. It leads it right off to the very top of the list. And so that's what he's talking about here. Every true believer produces fruit. And one of the most important ways that you and I can be sure that the things that belong to salvation genuinely belong to me is spiritual fruitfulness that perseveres, not perfectly, but perseveres day in, day out as we lean on Jesus, pressing forward, resting on the foundation of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question you can ask yourself is this, do I see any signs of fruit in my life right now? Spirit-empowered fruit in my life right now. The author looks at these brothers and sisters and says, I can see it. It is tangible. It is manifest among you. And that's why he can say, I am sure of better things, things that belong to salvation with you. And that's meant to be an assurance that lands in our lap as well if we struggle in the area of assurance with our salvation. Okay? Now, this is the first shot of a strong encouragement. And what's obvious to the author is that they have been diligent in these things. They've been extremely earnest in overflow of God's love for them, flowing outward towards others, serving the saints as they began when they first professed faith in Christ and how they still do it today. They've been extremely earnest and diligent in these things. Therefore, he says, let's keep this ball rolling. And now what I want to do is I want you to show that exact same earnestness Show that exact same diligence and clinging to the full assurance of hope that you can have in the guaranteed promises of God. So that's point number two. Show the same earnestness, he says. Verses 11 through 18. This is the, the second shot of strong encouragement. Look at how he begins there in verse 11. Not only does he say, we feel sure of better things, but now he says, we desire. Well, what do they desire? Desires each one of you to show the same earnestness. There it is. Same earnestness. 
How? Having the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? So that you may not be sluggish, but actually be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, he says. So the same diligent earnestness that marks their service to one another, guess what? That's to be the exact same diligent earnestness that's to mark their spiritual growth until the end. So be diligent, be earnest in these things. Keep running forward towards the end in this way. And why does the author desire this? Because again, I think he's circling back around because you can't divorce these verses from the terrifying warning we just studied last week. The author knows what's just come out of his mouth concerning these things, so he's just going into encouragement overdrive to remind them of the grace and the mercy they've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's his desire? Why does he desire them to show the same earnestness, to have this full assurance of hope to the end? Because he knows that when people make constant and obvious growth in the things of God, they will become more and more assured of their eternal hope in Jesus Christ. I think we fail at times to see the disconnect between when by the power of the Holy Spirit, fueled by the fuel of God's saving grace, we avail ourselves of the means of grace that he gives us, gathering with the saints on a Sunday morning, gathering with the saints in a community group in the evening, reading the scriptures, praying, sharing the gospel in these ways. These are all means of grace to remind us, and as we grow in them and mature in them and lay hold of them and practice them and put them into their normal, habitual rhythms of our lives, guess what happens? Will you become more and more assured of the eternal hope we have in Christ Jesus? It's when we begin to grow cold in those things and those disciplines of our spiritual lives begin to, to less wax and more wane and grow cold in our life that we begin to wonder and doubt. It's because we're removing ourselves from the heat of the gospel. You've seen it before if you've ever done like a bonfire. You have a bonfire, you burn the wood, you set it on fire, the wood catches fire, it burns down into some of those red hot glowing embers. All of us have seen this before. If you were to take a pair of tongs and grab one of those embers and pull it away from the heat source of the fire and set it over there, guess what happens? What does it do? it begins to grow cold. But that exact same ember that is growing cold can be fanned back into flame by what? Dumping a bunch of gas on it? No, just grab it and put it right back in the fire. It just goes right back to glowing red hot. And so what he's saying here, I think, is sort of that illustration there is when we're, our lives, our spiritual lives, become like that, uh, that little glowing coal, that piece of ember there, when we make decisions in our lives to remove ourselves from those glowing red-hot means of grace, we will begin to stand over here and just wonder and, and worry and doubt, and, and we're not quite sure if we're saved, and can we trust the certainty of God's guaranteed promises? He's saying, no, no, no. Let's fight. Let's strive. Let's encourage one another to be here right at the, the red-hot center of God's God's good grace. You see, spirit-empowered spiritual growth fuels our assurance. Progressing from milk to meat fuels our assurance. 
Growing skillful in the Word of God fuels our assurance. The constant practice of going on to maturity fuels our assurance. That's why he called this out in their lives when he was talking about them being spiritually immature. Because he knows that by the constant practice of doing the opposite of what they were doing is how they can be sure that the better things of salvation truly belong to them. So, of course, the author has this desire for his people. He's a good pastor. <laughs> he doesn't want his people spinning out in the, cold, the, the cul-de-sac, the rabbit hole of, of doubt. He wants them to be standing with stiff spines, knowing God has saved me. And when the God justifies a sinner, when God declares By his grace and mercy, you, sinner, are someone who is declared right before me, with me, in a relationship that I am declaring it. That is the language of promise. The language of justification by grace through faith in Christ should be couched in the language of God declaring a promise. And that can stiffen our backs to march forward in that way. But for some reason, we tend to remove ourselves from the places where where that red-hot grace, instead of fanning us in flame, we just remove ourselves to the side and we begin to doubt these things. He doesn't want this. His desire is not for this. He's a good pastor. He wants them to continually grow in the full assurance of hope that can be theirs. So he says, don't be sluggish in these things. Don't be dull in these things. Things that result in assurance Why would you be an enemy to your own soul in that way is sort of the implication. Like why would you like sort of take yourself out of the game in that way by being sluggish in the things that result in assurance? Rather, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be an an imitator. An imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Listen, the undisputed fact is that God's people have the certainty of God's promises. God's people have the certainty of God's promises promises. And it's the certainty of God's promises coming to pass that gives us full assurance that our hope in God is not misplaced. But if we're honest, we'll have to admit there are times along our pilgrim journey where we doubt. Everyone ever been in the doubt train before? Yeah? Three of us have. Everyone else, you guys can just check out for the rest of the sermon here, all right? Because this is where we're going. We're talking about doubt here. We will admit there are times along our pilgrim journey where we doubt. What do we doubt? We doubt whether we can trust the promises of God. Is, is God really trustworthy? Like, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to say right now, Tom. He's trustworthy, but like the circumstances of this particular situation are like making me believe I don't know if I can lean full tilt on him right now. Whether it's pain in your life, whether it's pain that you see in the life of others, whether it's the terrible news stories of just extreme suffering that flow across your newsfeed, whether it's hostility from family members that you receive for following Jesus, any of these and more invite us to doubt that God is a promise-keeping God. Any of these circumstances can sort of be like an axe head chopping out the root We doubt his promises to meet our needs. We doubt his promise to hear our prayers. We can be skeptical of his promise to never leave nor forsake us. 
We can be skeptical that he will forgive us once again for that sin we committed and then we said we'd never do again. Maybe you doubt God's goodness. Maybe you doubt that God really loves you. Or maybe you just simply doubt that you're really saved. Doubt can creep in. The author knows this can be our experience, which is why he encourages us to imitate those men and women who walked by faith and patience, trusting and the promise-keeping God along the way, not only when it was extremely easy to do so, but most importantly, when it was extremely hard to do so. Now, this idea he's going to dial into in chapter 11, yeah? The great hall of fame of faith where he's just like, by faith this person, and by faith that person, and by faith, and by faith, by faith. It's like 40 verses of just all the by faith of people where he's just going to go, here's just a simple list of people who are worthy to imitate. But for now, what he's going to do is he's going to narrow in on one person, one, Abraham. And he says, well, let's just roll out Abraham, for instance, and consider him, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, so there he is, Abraham, a man, just like you and me, he's on the receiving end of a promise to God. Here's what happened. Since he, God, had no one greater by whom to swear, what did God do? He swore by himself, saying to Abraham, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so what did Abraham do? Abraham, having patiently waited obtained the promise what you should do when you see little quotes like that in verse 14 is you should go okay a little trigger should go off that tells you uh, that's being quoted from somewhere else in the bible and if you look in your bible and see the reference the reference will take you back to genesis chapter 22 the great chapter where abraham is called to sacrifice his one and only son isaac now, at this stage in redemption history, Genesis chapter 22, God had made a promise to Abraham. What was the promise? Abraham, I'm going to give you many descendants. Abraham, I'm going to fill the earth with these descendants. Then along came the birth of Isaac, which was a very miraculous sort of thing. If you want a good chuckle today, go and read how the apostle Paul describes that whole event taking place in Romans chapter 4. He describes Abraham as being as good as dead. Uh, which always just makes me, makes me laugh because, in other words, he was very old. Brother should not have been making children. And it says the womb of Sarah was barren. Like, she was gone too. Like, both of them, this should not have been taking place. But it was revealed through the birth of Isaac that Isaac would be the son who's going to carry forward this promise made to Abraham. So here is Abraham receiving a promise recognizing by God that Isaac was going to be the one to carry this promise forward, then God says, Isaac, what I need you to do is go and sacrifice and kill your son. What would you have done in that situation? That's hard in that moment to trust the promise of God. It'd be hard in that moment to do that, just like it's been hard in our lives at times to trust the promises of God when we can't see a way forward from our perspective on how he can hold that promise true. So you could see why Abraham would be entirely confused by Abraham's entirely confused by Yahweh's command to sacrifice Isaac because after all, if Isaac dies, how in the world will the promise come to pass? But here's what Abraham did. Totally freaked out, took matters into his own hands and said, no way, God, and did whatever he wanted to do. It's not what he did, according to Genesis 22. 
Here's what Abraham did. He recognized the promise for what it was, a promise from the promise-keeping God. And thus says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, no, listen to how he describes Abraham in this moment. He says, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Why? Why was he giving glory to God even in moments like these? Because Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. If God gives you a promise, says Abraham, he is going to bring it about. And so I know that in the Genesis 22 circumstance, I don't quite see how this thing is going to, to play out, but I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to grab the wood, and I'm going to march up the hill to Mount Moriah, and I'm going to come to the place where I'm laying out my son, and the knife was up in his hand, and he's about ready to plunge it down, and the angel of the Lord says, Stop! I see you prom- you're trusting in the promises. Look, behold, a ram is over there in the thicket. He goes and grabs the ram, sacrifices the ram, and goes on down the line. What's interesting, and we'll see this in Hebrews chapter 11, is that the author tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, in verses 17, 18, and 19, something that we don't see in Genesis chapter 22. And the faith of Abraham, so trusting in the promises of God, Hebrews 11 tells us, is that if he were to even have plunged the knife into Isaac, his trust in the promise that God would bring about the promise through Isaac was so steadfast and sure that he was trusting that God would even resurrected Isaac right from the dead after he plunged that knife into his heart. Why? Because God had made a promise. This thing that I'm promising you, it has to come through Isaac. So here's Abraham going, I don't know how it's going to happen. Even if I have to plunge a knife into my own son, I have trust and faith in the promises of God to the point that he would just resurrect Isaac right back. Why? Because God said it has to take place through Isaac. And the author is saying, that's the kind of promise keeping God I'm wanting you to hold fast to. That's the kind of strong encouragement we can have for our souls. And notice that in this instance with Abraham, God goes even further. I mean, it's not, I mean, when God makes a promise, I'm going to do this. You can trust that it's going to get done. But guess what he did with Isaac? He went one step further, or what he did with Abraham is he went one step further, and then he even declared an oath swearing by himself, I swear on my name, Isaac, the promise that I've given to you is going to come to pass. That's what he says there. Continue on in verse 16. God further doubled down on the certainty of his promise when he swore by himself, God did. And then what did he do? What did God do? He guaranteed his promise with an oath to show more convincingly as if the promise-keeping God giving a promise he cannot not keep isn't convincing enough. He's like, let me just sort of like double down on convincing you. I'm going to swear an oath to the heirs of the promises, the unchangeable character of his purpose, therefore convinced by these two unchangeable things. What two unchangeable things? The promise-keeping, oath-making God. And by the way, it's impossible for God to lie. So when he makes a promise, if you haven't figured it out yet, like right, when he makes a promise and then swears it on an oath by his name that he's going to keep the promise that he cannot not keep because he doesn't lie. Like, do you see the strong encouragement? I mean, he's just pounding this truth home. What did Abraham do? Abraham patiently waited. 
Oh, he said it. All right. Oh, he's not like, oh, he's not running around and all frantic and overly anxious and that kind of stuff. He's like, I'm going to patiently, in faith, wait upon the God who promised to bring to pass what he promised to bring to pass. And what did he do? He obtained the promise. Because Abraham's a really swell guy and never messed up. Don't know your Bibles well enough to know that. If you're, if you're going, well, yeah, he's a swell guy and never messed up. You need to go back and read your Bibles. There were some trips, stumbles, and fumbles big time along Abraham's way. But how and why did he obtain the promise? Because he patiently waited upon the promise-keeping God to bring about the promise he said he would keep in God's timing. Some of us need to hear this this morning. That you're trying to run ahead, taking matters into your own hands in certain areas of your life. And the imitation of Abraham for you right now is to slow your roll, step back, and patiently wait for God to fulfill the promise that he made to you. See, even though he didn't see the realization of God's promises immediately in the moment, and even though he wasn't sure how God would keep his promise, Abraham knew the promise was reliable because of the nature of God himself. Thus, he believed the promise and kept on believing the promise. This, says the author, is how Abraham stands as the example. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie. What God has said, he will do. Therefore, armed with, and listen, armed with the convincing, unchangeable, trustworthy, guaranteed of God's promise, what do we as heirs of the promise have? What do we have? Look at the verse. We who have fled for refuge, here's what we have. We have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope that is before us. What hope? Christ Jesus, our hope. The one hope worth having, the hope at the very heart of the gospel of God's free grace, the hope that Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. He is that firm foundation. He's the anchor for our soul. That is the strong encouragement we have to hold fast to that hope who is Christ Jesus himself. Truly in Christ, the author is saying, we have an unshakable hope. The one hope worth having. And the knowledge that this hope is absolutely guaranteed by God gives us what? A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That's the third and last shot of encouragement from the author. Verses 19 and 20, look at what he says. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What? A hope. Christ, Jesus, our hope. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Here again, it's just another Old Testament picture that the author is using with his people, an Old Testament picture that they totally would have gotten. They would have been overly familiar with. It's the picture of the high priest who on the annual day of atonement, if you're like, well, where is this at? Go read Leviticus chapter 16 and read about the day of atonement. It's the day where the high priest would enter into the temple and he would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of an animal that turns God's wrath away from, from Israel. There were two sections inside the inner temple. 
holy place and the holy of holies. And what separated the holy of holies from the other part of the temple was this giant curtain. And on the day of atonement, the high priest was able to go behind the curtain, offer the sacrifice necessary, blood sacrifice of an animal. But guess what that high priest would have to eventually do? He'd have to turn around and walk right back out. He couldn't stay there in that place. And ultimately, he was having to offer a sacrifice for himself as well because as we saw back in Hebrews chapter 5, he was a mere man too, a sinner, just as, just as we are. But, says the author, the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul is that Christ Jesus, our hope, has entered into that inner place behind the curtain, and there our anchor remains firm and well-rooted, for he's also our forerunner who has blazed the trail into the harbor of heaven as only he could do, having offered once and for all the necessary sacrifice on our behalf. And so now, on the basis of his finished work, guess what? Your hope is secure. Your hope is secure. Because you're so awesome at holding on to him? No, because he's so awesome at holding on to those whom he saved. On the basis of his finished work, our hope is secure. You see, which of the Old Testament priests could ever save themselves? Well, I'm the forerunner. None. Which of them could ever say, I can go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain and stay there forever? None. But Jesus, the great high priest, can. It is only Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he says, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's only him who can get this done. So now notice he's gone full circle right there with that last phrase. Back in chapter 5, verse 10, he's like, hey, priest, and Jesus is the better one, that Melchizedek thing. He's like, actually, before we get on to the whole Melchizedek thing, let's talk about spiritual immaturity. Let's talk about apostasy. I'm going to give you some strong encouragement. And now that all that's done, he goes, whoop, right back onto the Melchizedek train, and he's going to go marching forward. And that's what he's doing right here in verse 20. He's going to swing right back in into this idea about Jesus being the great high priest, our Savior, so remember, we can rest assured because of the certainty of God's promises. Believers have a stable anchor for their souls in Christ. Beloved, may we hold fast to this hope set before us. So here's my question. Will your anchor hold? Will your anchor hold? Every one of us has an anchor that we're holding on to. For some of us, it is Jesus. For some of us, it is not Jesus. There's no neutrality here. We're either holding on to something. My question is, that to which you are holding, is it the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul that it is meant to be? Will your anchor hold when the storms of life come? Will your anchor hold when doubts arise? Will the anchor hold when assurance begins to lag? Will it hold? If you can say, my anchor the sure and steadfast anchor of my soul is Christ Jesus, my hope, then I would encourage you to answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, I'm holding on to him as the anchor of my salvation. I've come to him in repentance and faith, and I'm continuing to hold on to him as I march forward, going on to maturity. But some of us can say, man, I'm nowhere near holding on to the anchor. I've never even approached him as the anchor of my soul in salvation. Then my encouragement to you would be today, approach him in that way. 
Again, he's the great high priest whose name is love, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and he will not turn you away if you come to him in salvation. Let's pray. Christ, it's you and you alone that we, that we profess and we proclaim. It's you that we need. It's you that we are dependent upon. It's you who is our hope, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Lord, help us to hold fast to the hope set before us. For those of us in Christ, by grace, through faith, would you help us to continue to cling as we go out into the weak? For those of us who have never come to Christ in the moment of salvation, would you help us? For the first time, truly come and hold fast to the hope set before us, the hope that Jesus is the Savior who saves sinners, and I'm going to come to him and confess my sin, and he's going to hear my sin, and we have the promise that he will forgive us of our sin. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen.